Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of Rice Bears Podcast, Staying Local. This week on the show we've got Jeff Farrenson, the Manager of Inspections at Auckland Council. Jeff's going to have a chat to us about modular buildings and as many of you know he leads a really passionate team of dedicated building inspectors, CCC assessors and a number of others. In 2019 Jeff and his team carried out 185,000 building inspections. They issued 16,000 CCCs and processed 17,000 BWOFs, all in a day's work for Jeff and his team. But on top of the really interesting work he does, he's also got a fascinating backstory. Jeff played professional rugby for, of all nations, Germany, and now really enjoys spending time with his sons uh, who themselves are, are pretty accomplished sportsman. So I hope you can all uh, sit back and have a coffee and really enjoy this uh, podcast with Jeff Ferenson. And remember, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, if you want to be added to our regular newsletter mail out list, then just send me an email, nathan at ricespear.co.nz. Enjoy the show. Ferenson, welcome to the show and, and thanks very much for coming on board. My pleasure. So you're the Manager of Inspections at Auckland Council, got that right, don't I? Yes, yep, uh, amongst other things. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely talk about all those things shortly, um, but in the meantime, it's it's not a small team. How many people are you leading at the moment? Uh, the team's about 220 strong at the moment, not counting contractors. And I suppose the real challenge at the moment is that you've essentially got all those 220 people uh, not working or working from home. That's That's got to be pretty tough. Yes. Yeah, it's been a big challenge, all right? What are the team doing on a day-to-day basis? Is there a bit of a schedule or...? Um, so we've got um, the CCC teams uh, basically doing their work online. So they haven't slowed down. In fact, um, yeah, they've been really churning them out. It's been it's been really good to see how quickly they adapted to working remotely. Um, the BWOF team, they're they're very similar. They can um, do a lot of their stuff, their deskbound stuff, uh, remotely. The inspectors, we've got um, a mixture. Some inspectors have carried out inspections during the lockdown period uh, remotely. Uh, some have actually done physical inspections in isolation where needed, and these are just for essential services and businesses that are operating during the lockdown. Um, the pools uh, fencing team, they haven't, uh, they've been um, doing work for other teams. So even though they're not specialists in, in other areas, they do know the system pretty well. So we've used them in things like data entry um, processes. And uh, yeah, they're very, very capable in those, um, those fields. And the, um, the durability, the COA team, they've, basically been doing similar to the inspections where they can and also um, we've crammed in as much training as possible. Well it's great to hear that you're doing your best to keep people occupied and uh, and fulfilled which is essential as we we all try and work towards popping out the other side of this thing. I've got some figures in front of me 
last year you and the team carried out 185,000 inspections, 16,000 CCCs were issued. So it's a huge team with huge responsibilities. And obviously there are some challenges ahead, but are you able to speak to some of the recent successes? Um, yeah, it is a big challenge, but we get a lot out of it. I think um, the the inspection team take great pride in some of the stuff they help enable in Auckland. You know, the the, the, the cityscape is changing and being part of that's really exciting for a lot of them. Particularly now, we've got a couple of 50-storey monsters going up and, you know, you can imagine um, not uh, being involved in this sort of work before in New Zealand and now being thrust into being the inspection um, team has been has been great in terms of learning. We've had to really upskill very quickly. Um, in saying that, uh, we've used a lot of specialists to help guide us and support us along the way. How do you upskill? Because where there's no precedent, there's nothing to look to. Yes. So we use a um, there's a mixture. So so depending on the specialist fields or, or the um, uh, wherever the um, the work comes from. So, so for instance, the overseas uh, products, uh, we really needed to upskill on assessing QA processes um, and, uh, and auditing the QC. With, with that sort of stuff there, we needed to have people in our team who specialised in that. So people with backgrounds from working in factories, um, auditing QA programmes previously, we've used that. We also got specialist um, help in terms of engineering, both fire and, uh, and structural. So, yeah, it really is uh, wherever we find there are gaps in our knowledge or there's things there that we just need second opinions on, we'll go looking for people who really know their stuff on it. For the listeners who might not know, that's probably why, Jeff, last year you were the Boynes Innovator of the Year because you've got this ability to think outside the box and, and look for other opportunities. And I mean, <laughs> not every building inspector has the same background or, or skill set. Oh, it's, it's definitely a changing game. I mean, even, even looking at the modular stuff now, we're, we're doing inspections that uh, are kind of hybrids of this sort of inspect, traditional inspections we would normally see. So, you know, mixing and matching, framing and wrap and fire and acoustic together in one element uh, you're looking at has, has really been challenging. But it's been great too because that, that sort of stuff is the future and we've got to keep up with it. Definitely. Jeff, I've, I've done a bit of internet stalking this morning and um, I see that you've been at Auckland Council since 1996, I think starting in Waitakere. It's a long time to be in the game. Yeah, it seems like a long time. <laughs> it doesn't look at Jeff. I'm sure people are going to be thinking about it when they listen to this. <laughs> Looks to be deceiving, yeah. More recently, you were the building control manager at Auckland West and I think you also held the role of training manager. Is that right? Yeah, the um, I was I was in charge of the processing team for the Northwest at one point, and the um, yeah, I was part of the training and competency and development of the teams as well. So I've kind of been around a few different roles in council, or or within building control. Jeff, part of the reason I was keen to get you involved in this podcast was to talk about modular buildings and modern methods of construction. It's obviously a hot topic and one that you're all across. So can you give us a bit of a rundown on what your level of involvement is with MMC? So I think um, we really started to take modular seriously 
um, in 2017 when there was a um, uh, MB determination that came out on the Ecotech um, projects that were being built in Auckland, all uh, relocated to Auckland. These are two modules that were imported from China. And at the time, um, it, yeah, we really were flying by the seat of our pants in terms of knowing what to do and in assessing these buildings because they were completely finished by the time they got to Auckland. So um, prior to that, we had had um, a lot of dealings with modular within New Zealand. Um, we were involved with the concision stuff from uh, Rolleston and, and, you know, even in Auckland, you've got Keith Hay and a few others that have been doing it for a long time. But this was the first time where um, we really didn't know um, how to approach buildings that were completely finished and sealed up. So we couldn't even, you, you, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ecotech, but it's it's basically steel box. Um, so you, it's not that easy to sort of look into um, <laughs> and uh, and check things like insulation and wiring and plumbing fit, uh, fittings. And So yeah, that was probably the first time we got involved. I um, We went from there, we had the district court uh, judgment give us further guidance on uh, how we treat that. Um, and then I ended up going to a few factories. Uh, there was, um, you know, I've been to Vietnam and China and, and, and looked at how, how they were actually doing it in the factory and try to start aligning um, some of the, the process to how we could look to um, assess um, from both the building code requirements in New Zealand, even though it wasn't con, con um, considered uh, applicable overseas, it still needed to fit with the building consent that was being applied for here. So we were basically looking at the QA um, in the factories to see whether or not they aligned with what they had said was going into the building consent. And then we were going to start um, at the documentation stage of that, moving, moving through to what we called keeping them honest. Um, so that's the auditing phase um, in the factories. Uh, and there was different approaches taken on that. We we um, we saw things like third party independent um, auditing through to our own inspectors going out to factories and doing that. So now we've got a, a team specifically um, put together for modular, both from the pro and it's an end to end process. So they're processing. Um, so they start with a pre application meeting and then they process and then they inspect or audit and then they actually do the inspections on site when it's all put together. Yeah, we'll get to Auckland Council's guidance document and processes in a minute. But before we do that, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on MB's position. As you know, MB say in those determinations that you referred to that building work that's carried out overseas is not building work for the purposes of the Act. What are your thoughts? I, I can see where the logic comes from. Um, it would be very hard-pressed to force our building code on overseas factories, particularly if they're dealing with different countries and and, and their own building rules for that matter. So, yeah, I think it, it's the way that um, it's been set up now, we can get to a level of confidence where we're satisfied on reasonable grounds that the component that's coming in does comply with what's being put together in the building, in the building consent. So yeah, I think um, it took a little bit of uh, getting our heads around it, but we we are fully behind it now. Okay, so the QA process, which seems to me to be quite a a prominent feature of your procedure, can you talk a bit about that? 
Yes, it is a, um, it's quite an interesting one. When we first started out, we were very risk adverse, like you would be, and uh, it, almost to the point where we micro-inspected pretty much everything, a lot more than we would, um, say, a building built on site here in New Zealand. And that included right down to the details and the plans. Um, once we got that confidence and we were comfortable with uh, what was happening in that particular factory, then we could probably move to the next level of QA. So it's not just a case of approving a QA, uh, assessing a QA process and approving it. We've got to be com com confident in ourselves uh, that that QA process is something that's consistently carried out in that factory. Yes. So speaking of those factories, you mentioned earlier that you've been to a few of them in various places in the world. What were they like? What were your observations? Um, probably the key observation was that um, the documentation or the plans that the modules were being built to um, were not detailed enough. And that led to a lot of assumption on the factory lines. Um, and when you're dealing with people who are not builders or, or familiar with the building code, that assumption is a hit and miss. And so there was a lot of rework created by that. So what we found was when they started upping the detail in the documentation, so say, for instance, um, if they're using BIM, they were going to a level 400 or higher, that created um, the ability for them to start really providing no guesswork for the person on the factory floor, and right down to the millimetre of where each screw goes. And that was one of the key findings from the beginning. We found a lot of buildings um, were given documentation like they would be on a normal site here in New Zealand, where the builders, um, you know, they can assume a lot of stuff just from their own experience and, 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 and knowledge. Yeah, so it sounds like the classic measure twice and cut once is what it all comes down to. It's all about the preparation and the quality of the documents that come to you pre-app stage. Yes, it is definitely. The, um, the learnings we saw, um, and once we started got, uh, feeding that back to uh, the newer applicant factories that were coming on board, um, those that took it on board saved so much time and money and mm. not having to go through the same mistakes. So yeah, it is something that, um, it's, it's a proven um, technique, definitely. Measure twice. That's great. So when you gave them the feedback, they were all receptive and took it on board? It's an interesting question. One of the things that we talk about amongst ourselves here in, in the, the modular team is the, uh, the intent of the customer. Uh, when they first come in to meet. And you can tell from day one, if the intent is there to provide a quality product, they'll pull out all stops to prove it. Um, versus uh, you'll get someone that says, look, I've been doing this for 40 years and I've been delivering to all sorts of countries around the world. Um, you've just got to take my word for it that these are pretty good buildings. And um, they were generally the ones that we found had the most gaps. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Typical. You've talked about the modular team. How many people are in there? Uh, we've got um, two, two dedicated to the audit, QA and inspection side. And uh, at the moment, we've just got the one on the processing. Uh, those team, that, that team, although it's small, has got the support when needed by other processors and inspectors. So what we were planning on doing, we originally looked at the, we forecast that we'd probably need four of each 
inspection and processing once the modular process got up and running fully in Auckland. What is the expectation for modular in Auckland? Are there any metrics around that? Uh, Not for a year or so. Um, It has been a lot slower than we had predicted. um, I'm not 100% sure why the reasons are that um, it hasn't taken off like they had predicted it was going to. But uh, yeah, with the Kiwi build forecasts, they were looking at up to 20% at some point. Wow. Which was heap. I I think it's. yeah, we were looking at about 30,000 buildings in Auckland being modular at some point. That's probably quite fortunate that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd need a bit more than four people. <laughs> Definitely. But it is the future and it's, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that you can probably expect that team to grow. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Now's probably a good time to talk about Auckland Council's guidance document. Uh, And one thing I think it does really well is emphasise that modular building is not a one-size-fits-all method. Uh, The document creates four different types, which caters for everything from a a tiny home built in Auckland right through to a hotel fabricated offshore. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's so true. In fact, even those four types we've got, the typologies in that document, um, they don't cover everything. And so it's really important. I think the first um, introduction page spells out that communication is key and early communication is really important. So anything that doesn't fit into those four typologies, we, we, we've we got um, guidance for that. It's probably you, you didn't want to start getting too complex into the guidance documents. So for, for the one-off type scenarios or the, or the hybrids, yeah, we're more than happy to speak about those at a pre-application meeting. For those listeners who might not have any idea what we're talking about here, the guidance document, it's it's publicly available for download on the on the council's website, I assume? Yes, yep, available there. So ha- had you anticipated other BCAs around the country downloading it, uh, adopting it, and running with it? Yeah, I, I suppose um, our, our, yeah, our goal was really to try and provide some consistency to the industry, to the customers out there that were applying for building consents. Um, whether other um, BCAs took up the the same process, I think that could only help. However, we are aware that um, you know we have the the luxury of a big team and, and being able to dedicate certain specialties and certain areas. So it might not suit some of the smaller BCAs. Yeah, presumably though, you've had feedback from other BCAs and maybe MB about the guidance document? Yes, yeah, we put it out as widely as we could, including the factories themselves. Well, I suppose the factories want certainty before they apply for a building consent too. Yeah, well, they, they really they like the idea of a consistent approach where, um, you know, they at least they knew what they were coming in for. And, and probably more so providing uh, for people that didn't have much experience in New Zealand processes, providing some um, ex- some sample templates was really helpful. So I've been through this document in a fairly detailed way, and it, it seems to me that there are there are a few pillars or more important aspects to take away, and a pre-application meeting or meetings is probably right up there. Yes. The pre-application meetings, yeah, we we have to put a plural on that one. <laughs> so so you, you you you'll you'll always find that um, uh, I can't harp on more about communication, but that's really what it comes down to. 
um, setting up the the structure from day one makes the, the whole process go so much smoother. And we generally average for an overseas factory probably three or four pre-app meetings. And do those happen face to face here in New Zealand, or I mean, we're we're speaking via Zoom at the moment. Do you use that sort of technology uh, for those pre-app meetings? Yeah, uh, today we've we've done all of these face to face in in New Zealand and Auckland, but um, yeah, there's nothing. Uh, that might be one of the positive things to come out of COVID nineteen is it's much more common to use Zoom for communication. Mm. Yes, it is. Be very interesting to see how that goes. You know, I think you're 100% right that on modern methods of construction projects, the need for communication is just so important, and that's where the value in pre-app meetings really is. What do you think about having a pre-construction meeting as well as a pre-application meeting? Uh, the, the, the pre-construction meeting is probably um, more uh, the, the advantages from that is more for the stuff on site, you know, when the module turns up and the um, you're looking at the methodology on how it's all going to go together. And, and that way, at least you can kind of cement your inspection regime before you even start and no one's caught off guard. The last thing we want to do is turn up and say, oh, no, we needed to look at this here and it's been closed in or concreted over us. So I like that. That's probably more the pre-construction meeting side of it. So just coming back to those pillars of the Auckland Council guidance document, uh, in addition to pre-application, another really key part of it, isn't it, is the Memorandum of Understanding. Yeah, we've um, we've used the MOU process um, before, and, and to great success. I think it's, a, it's nice to have an agreement up front because you all know you're going in the same direction there. And, and it's good to have a fallback. You know, you can always keep each other honest, and that goes both ways. So the, the MOU in this um, instance here has, has the advantage of sort of putting everything out on the plate and, and open, so full transparency from day one. As a lawyer acting for councils in this area, one of the most interesting issues for me is how the inspections are to be done. And it seems that there are a couple of options that you've uh, identified in the guidance document. The first option is to go through an approved third party um, or the alternative is that the council will actually travel overseas. So how does that work in principle? Um, yes, so I guess we, we, we don't really have a preference either way. I think we, we're really just aiming for that goal of um, ensuring compliance. So when we look at third party, it's no different to say using engineers to provide PS4s for work done in New Zealand. Um, we've got to be satisfied that the person doing that work um, basically knows what they're doing. They've got some experience and background and uh, in, in that sort of process. And also um, we need to put some checks and balances to keep that process honest as well. And that may mean randomized audits. Um, or, or, or milestone inspection that certain parts of the build, the modular build. Now, um, if you say had traditional type inspections in a factory that a third party uh, was um, covering off and then providing some sort of certification to us, we would still have the right to audit that 
at any stage. Um, interestingly enough, yeah, this, uh, we, we've used video inspections. Um, I was a bit worried when we first approached the idea um, with China having the firewall that it does, but yeah, we managed to um, yeah, do a full pre-line inspection on a two-story module um, over the video, uh, over a video link. And um, yeah, that, that's just one aspect instead of sending, I mean, obviously uh, you get the best um, result from an inspection point of view if you, you're there face-to-face -face doing it yourself, but there are other ways it's going to cap. Yeah, I, I suppose the, I mean, the critics might be sitting there saying, well, how do you know that what you're inspecting via video is, is the same module that is being shipped to New Zealand? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's where I go back to that, uh, that the word intent. Again, you, you do, um, there is a certain amount of feel when you first start the process and understanding how people, you know, how, how different companies are reacting to the process. And as we get more um, detailed and involved in it, what we find is for someone to try and um, shirk the system, it actually is a lot harder for them. They would have to probably outlay more money <laughs> to do that initially and try and uh, pull the wool over someone's eyes um, and then try and, and, and try and keep that up it's very difficult considering the detail of the QA you've got. We've got GPS on video feeds and photos. We've got randomized. When I say random, we've, we can use people um, to visit that factory at any time as part of whatever we agree in the MOU to do a random inspection on what they're doing out there. So they, they know that at any stage, someone could turn up at the door and, and walk through the factory and check that they're covering the QA like they say they are. So, so, yeah. And I suppose that's no different from a normal inspection, whether that be for cladding or pre-line or whatever it is. You can't be at all places at all times, and there's plenty of ways to rot the system if you really want to. Yeah, no, there really isn't much difference. I mean, we, we've seen the, the, the urban myth about people taking reinforcing mesh out of the slab after we've done inspections and that sort of thing, you know. Um, those that have put mesh into slabs know how hard it is to cut and shape and tie and have everything prepared and then have to take that down again it's almost not i mean it is not worth it you know there's always a chance someone has been will, will catch you either by um someone across the road you know on another building site or the inspector driving past or whatever so yeah it's not worth it and that's that and it goes back to that intent you do get a feel for that from people when you're talking to them yeah, that's right. And I suppose because you've got the MOU in place, you've got the ability to, to carry out a, a spot check and make sure everything's right. Yes, that's right. We generally give as, as much um, detail in that, that audit regime or the checks and balances as possible because they're paying for it at the end of the day. So they need to know up front what they're looking at. Um, we wouldn't expect, you know, um, for a, a standard residential two-story modular unit, um, you, we wouldn't expect to visit that factory 15 times during construction of that new module. So yeah, having it spelt out at the beginning is really important. So you are the perfect person to ask this question. What's on the horizon for modular buildings, especially in Auckland? Yeah, we, we, um, we've got a five-story um, 
modular in Northcote, just in the, uh, coming out of the ground now. We've got a uh, 14-storey um, apartment slash hotel, managed hotel in town, and we've got a couple of six-storey, only hunger. And, uh, yeah, th th there really is um, uh, quite a, um, a good understanding now of the fire and acoustic requirements in putting these things together. And I think that came down to the clash um, programs that you can run in, in the BIM and the modeling that you can put in nowadays. So um, even though it is modular, it still uses the same um, philosophy of uh, fire separation and acoustic requirements as you would building from scratch. It's just the way that things are put together um, needs a lot more detail. You're probably talking, um, you know, three or four times as much detailing on a modular building as you would a standard, simply because there's, there really is no room to, to guess how these things are going to go together. I'd imagine that the tolerances are, are pretty tight with these units when they arrive on site and when they're needing to be assembled at, at, at rapid pace. Yeah, well, um, it's an interesting one. We had a, uh, a visit to the uh, Panasonic factory in Japan where it's all made by robots, you know, <laughs> and the precision is just amazing, you know, down to the millimetre. Um, what what it came down to wasn't so much putting it together. You knew that the components were going to fit together perfectly. It was how it all started on the ground on site, making sure that slab and foundation was perfect. That was probably the 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 biggest issue that we could foresee happening here in New Zealand. So we can't blame the overseas manufacturers for that problem. That's builders here in New Zealand not being up to scratch. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> not trying to be hard on the on the Kiwi building industry, of course. No, and we, we can't really blame the building industry here either because they've never really been relied on to that sort of tolerance that, you know, I mean, five mil here and there has been kind of standard uh, for, for as long as anyone can remember. But uh, when you're talking yeah, to the millimetre and modular, that's a whole new ballgame. So this, this year could be quite a big year for modular construction, especially in Auckland. Are, th are those um, projects you mentioned, are they due to be complete this year? Um, if, if not this year, it'll be probably early next year, yeah. It would be great to see a couple of really successful modular projects go up around the country because I get the sense that there's still a little bit of the fear of the unknown with these types of projects. But uh, the more that come through that are successful, the more people are going to be familiar with them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, the fear of the unknown. The the, the old... Um, uh, you know, myths about uh, low quality bills coming from overseas and stuff like that. And, you know, there may have been um, instances where um, there's also a little bit of xenophobia creeping in, I think, in some areas, which isn't too good to see. But I think um, if people are confident, I mean, if we're confident in, in, the, in the quality that's coming out of the factory, I think it. Uh, having a finished product to be able to show people would be a really good way to start uh, breaking down some of those barriers. It's great to be able to share your perspective and your insight with uh, some of our other listeners from from up and down the country. But I'm just wondering, is Auckland Council, uh, or you in particular, are you speaking to uh, your, your 
peers and, and other BCAs and, and trying to share that knowledge and share that expertise? Yes, we, we've, we've spoken to a lot of different BCAs around the country. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, and we're more than welcome to, uh, you know, pick up the phone or, or if they want to come up and, and um, talk to us face to face, we're more than welcome to help support in any way. Excellent. Jeff, we've, we've probably talked about modular for, for too long now, uh, and I, I want to ask you a few questions about you personally, because you've got a, a few stories to tell, including the fact that you played professional rugby in uh, Germany, of all places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was uh, lucky enough. Um, well, I, st- I started playing rugby quite late, so um, I didn't actually get my first professional contract till I was like... 20, 29, I think it was, and uh, played in the first division in France and uh, played in the premiership in, for London Irish in, in England. And um, yeah, while I was over there, they, they, the rumor got out that I had a German passport. So the German team approached me, and I was never going to be an All Black at that stage. So yeah, represented Germany at the 2003 World Cup qualifiers. <laughs> Amazing. It's pretty cool. And are you still playing now, or have you officially hung up your boots? Oh, yeah, no, they've been hung up a long time now. Fair enough. What keeps you busy these days? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, I enjoy golf and reading and, you know, going to the beach. I um, still I love supporting um, my son's sports endeavours and watching how they go. So, uh yeah, I kind of keep myself pretty busy. And have your sons followed in dad's footsteps or what are they into? Uh, so so um, they're basketballers. We're uh, yeah, basketball um, mad family. So one of them's actually um, playing. He's got a full scholarship at the University of Portland in Oregon. Oh, wow. So uh, he's back now for the lockout. But uh, yeah, he plays in the NCAA First Division over there. And that's a great... Um, that's a great league to watch and support. That must be really hard to be a professional sportsman uh, and to be training at, at home. I'd imagine he's got some sort of gym or, or set up at your place at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah he is. Uh, he's just raring to go. Probably um, the, the hardest thing for him at the moment is the online classes because, um, you know, an 8, 8 a.m. Portland class um, it's a 4 a.m. New Zealand class, so he's doing some pretty hard hours at the moment. Good on him. And are you doing any coaching or anything like that? No, I, I actually, um, this uh, this work, Malaki, got in the way of my coaching career. So uh, I kind of had to stand down after, uh, actually it was probably just last year, I finished coaching at Calston Boys. I was coaching their premier team for five years. But, uh, yeah, I, I hope one day I'll, I'll have the time to get back into it again. Well, now that you've got this guidance document off the ground and a few successful projects in, in the pipeline, you, you might find time to do a bit of coaching. I'd love to, yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. I'm sure something else will come along and take my time up. <laughs> and just talking about COVID for a second, as, as we come out of this, um, what, what are your expectations for the building industry? Anything in particular? I was just um, actually. That's why I was late to this uh, <laughs> to this meeting. I, I was speaking with the COVID team about uh, our approach to um, what happens in level three. So yeah, I think um, we 
just just from the feedback in the industry in Auckland anyway, there is going to be an initial flurry of activity um, for, for some of the work in play. Unfortunately, we have heard stories where there won't be some starting back up again on some um, partially started projects, which is a real shame. But, uh, it, yeah, what happens in the future, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But, uh, it looks like it probably will slow down for a while. I'm, I'm picking that your team is just rearing to go, though, and as soon as we do get let out of the cage, they'll be uh, ready to get at it. <laughs> yeah, we've been uh, we've been going through quite a bit of training, and uh, one of the team leaders reminded me today um, that uh, you know that our fail rates go up <laughs> <laughs> when people are trained in specific things that they weren't particularly looking at hard last. <laughs> so we're just gonna yeah. Got to be careful with that. Jeff, do you think that COVID provides an opportunity for self-certification? So in other words, um, reputable construction companies who are uh, well qualified to, to, to certify their own work. Um, is that a solution to, to some of the demand that you might have? Yes, I do. I think it's uh, for, for too long now, um, we've been treating the real good quality builders out there with the same brush as, you know, the, the, the shoddy builder. We've got to reward the good players somehow. And, and um, again, it comes down to that intent. The people that, that earn that sort of level um, of trust from councils are the sort of people that really bend over backwards. They guard it um, uh, for fear of losing it, you know. So... Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I think there is room there. It's just um, how you do that in a managed way and, and keep our risk and assurance team happy, standing on my shoulder there. Um, yeah, I mean, Artisan is a good example of that where, you know, we, we're using it for the, for the good builders that we know um, we can trust to do that. And, and it's not just builders. We're, we're doing it for bricklayers and some drain layers that we, I've got a brickie that has not failed an inspection in a year and a half. Um, and that's with uh, using apprentices and all sorts. It's just as the level of supervision is so good. So, yeah. Amazing. Oh, absolutely. You could eat your breakfast off this guy's rebates. It's <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear, Jeff, because we've all been involved in those cases where things have gone pear-shaped, but we probably don't celebrate the wins enough and uh, give the trust to those who have earned it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a, another advantage that I think um, has just come about in the development of our inspection tool and gathering data and reporting on it very easily, um, down to specific line items. So running almost like a school report on a builder now, I could get the, the, right down to the minute detail of what they've been doing in terms of if they've been failing, what they've been failing at, and breaking that down. So it's not just a case of Past fail history. Now you're actually looking at the type of things they are failing on. There's a big difference between not being ready and then uh, you know, not knowing uh, what the building code is. So yeah, we can we can kind of get down to that sort of level now and determining who are the good players. It's amazing to have that data, and uh, and I'd also say it's amazing that the industry has you, Jeff, being such a um, a forward thinking guy and. Um, someone who's not afraid of a bit of innovation so i've kept you long enough i just want to say a big thank you really appreciate you coming on the show no my pleasure thanks a lot for that Nathan.
Thanks, everyone. I hope you really enjoyed episode four of Rice Spears podcast, Staying Local. Uh, be sure to subscribe. And remember, if you want to be added to our newsletter mail out list, uh, which has interesting articles on topical issues facing our council clients, then just shoot me an email, nathan at ricespear.co.nz. See you next time.